This is unstructured. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today I have a really fascinating and remarkable guest. Um, Dr. James Fallon, he's a neuroscientist, I believe a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Um, he is a remarkable person, not only for his studious endeavors, but also for being a really brave individual because you have put yourself out there and been vulnerable exposing things about yourself to the world. And I really, really have to compliment you on that because that couldn't have been an easy thing to do. Eric, I, I appreciate uh, you seeing that, but it really is not difficult for me to do. I mean, I have a level of narcissism. I'm enough of a ham and I'm sure of what, of what I'm doing all the time, you know? And so for me, it was never a problem. I think the only uh, issue was how, you know, people close to me would take this. Right. And, and I, and I had to sit down with them and said, you know, uh, what do you think I, you know, about doing this, that I, that I say who I am, what is inside the brain and people are going to know you because you're, you know, my family and everything. And they, their response, all of them, my wife and my kids and, and, and other people involved, you know, extended family, well, they said, well, you're a professor, you're a teacher, so you, your thing is to uh, inform people, uh, you know, it, in an honest way. I, I do try to be honest. At least it's something like this, you know, not in other venues like the racetrack or going fishing. But, uh, and, and they said you should do this because you're a professor and this is what you do. And you know a fair enough, of, you know, about the brain and about what you have that this might be useful to people. And it's, and, and, help them learn about biological psychiatry, about personality disorders, and more specifically the, you know, the cluster B personality disorders, which are the dangerous ones to other people like psychopathy. And so my whole family was quite, uh, quite good about it. And that was my only concern. As far as me going out, it was like, an, it was only like an adventure, you know? And uh, the other thing is how are you going to disgrace your, your colleagues? You know, my, my <laughs> old colleagues I work with, is it going to impact them? But in fact, I haven't lost any. I'm still on grants with them. I write papers with them. And so people, I think generally have been understanding uh, and it, I, I, hopefully it hasn't hurt anybody. You know, I, it, and they tell me it hasn't, and, and it hasn't really changed uh, my life or, or their lives too much. My grandchildren love it. You know, Gramps is a, is a, is really a, a a crazy and evil professor, you know, because it's stuff to talk about. So it's been like that. Cool. So essentially you're a brain scientist or, or a neurologist. Can, can you get into a little bit more of, of what that is overall? Yeah. Uh, basically from the, you know, from the time I was a, a child, I always liked visual things, uh, visual patterns, uh, and I liked drawing. I still paint when I can. I'm not an artist, but I, I like doodling. I used to sit down with my grandfather when I was really small and he, and he taught me, we drew, went through all these wars, you know, and, and I drew them on, the, on a piece of uh, cardboard from start shirts, my father's start shirts. And, and he would teach me how to tell a story with pictures. Hmm. And, and he said, you know, each picture you draw, and this is, I've started with like four or five years old, cause he knew I loved to doodle. And 
And it was obvious uh, to me, to my teachers, my family, that I'm a visual learner and individual patterns. And, and so becoming a neuroanatomist at first, a very basic neuroanatomist, it's all about patterns, visual patterns and reading PET scans and fMRIs. It's all pattern recognition. This is my video game. Okay. So I got into a field which is not work to me. It's something I would do even if I didn't do it. And so it was a very natural thing. And I always knew I was going to be a biologist. There was never any question about any of that. So if, if so I understand if correctly, I correctly um, I'm echoing um, on your speaker. Your speaker, speaker you might want How's that? Uh, much better. Is it Okay. Um, you are studying images of the brain as it's lit up. Would that be a fair analogy where it's a red where it's lit and blue where it's not as active and things like that? Right. Now, when you go, when you go in for an anatomical scan, whether it's an X-ray or a CAT scan or a regular MRI, those are just anatomical scans, and they look the same whether you're dead or alive. Uh, we use those to get the anatomy of the brain and, or any other structure, but then we add onto it functional imaging, which tells us what areas of the brain are, are working hard, highly metabolically active, when you're doing some task, either during the scanning or right before the scanning, to see which cells and pathways are activated. And we take those, which is just, a, you know, a read of positrons and electrons and, and turn it into a color map. So if it's, you know, visually intuitive, we turn these into pictures uh, where we take the image of the brain and then project on the high and low activities. And it's high and low compared to either a normal person or before and after a drug or when you're young or older, mm -hmm. it's usually a comparison to something. And so we compare scans to normal people. So if you're part of the brain uh, during you know, a particular task, thinking about something or attending to something, looking at awful images, looking at kitty cats. Uh, we know what the normal pattern is. If your pattern, if your part of the brain is is higher in activity, we put red on that, right? So it's just visually intuitive. Mm -hmm. And if it's lower in activity, either to a normal uh, or under a different drug condition, because we do a lot of clinical trials, mm -hmm. then we put blue. So that's in, in the middle is kind of a yellow green. So you actually get to see the living brain versus just a, a bunch of slice things that are put forth on a, a microscope. You see That's it. Correct. We take living people and put them in the scanner. You know, when you do an fMRI, you're taking the scan as somebody is doing something exactly at the same time. When they're and usually some visual image or a mix of visual images, when you do a PET scan, you basically put somebody in a chair and you have them do something for half an hour. And then right after that, you put them into the scanner. So it's what you're doing during that half hour time, uh, which activates certain brain areas and uh, kind of inferred brain connections, what we call connectomes, that uh, are very typical of people, uh, either you know for a gender, for your age, et cetera. But there's these canonical type of pathways uh, that are active. And if you're different than that, it, it tells us something. It, it could be something quite good, you know. Uh, people who really have a high IQ, for example, are very smart. Hmm. Uh, they have a lot of workarounds, so they use different modules for the same thing. They can you can work around things, you know. Different they use different brain pathways, whereas somebody who's like a you know the average a good average person will tend to use only one or two of these modules. So you know, IQ is more about how many ways you have workarounds. Hmm. And uh, okay. yeah, that, no, that's awesome. Uh, 
I'm going to go completely side note on that. I've read somewhere that if you learn a language uh, before you're like 12 or 13 years old, that a certain part of your brain is used. But then if you learn a second language when you're older, it, it's a, another part of the brain. Is that the type of thing that you might pick up too? Well, yeah. The, uh, you know, every child is born right from the time they're born to, to understand basically any language on earth. And so in the first couple of years that's sculpted so that what they hear, the sounds that they hear are then reinforced. So those path, pathways are reinforced and the ones that aren't used are then suppressed. And, but every kid has the natural ability to learn all languages. And, and we have a, we actually have an app for that. I work with a group in China in here so that kids between the ages of birth and three years old will hear these universal sounds and it reinforces them so that when they grow up, they can speak any language without an accent or anything. But if you look at the development of language, uh, we also look at uh, people, we have a project of uh, people with genetic language problems where we're trying to see, you know, what genes are regulating this. And we also are looking into, in, you know, the, the paleo neurology. We're looking at the brains and genetics of, uh, of, of humans 20,000 years ago, 50,000, but oh, also wow. Neanderthals and before that. So we look at all these brains and try to reconstruct them and look for these language related genes to see how this is uh, emerging. Because, you know, language, if, if, if I may, there's three really good examples of where evolution doesn't explain, you know, Darwinian evolution does not explain how these things occur. Hmm. And, you know, usually in evolution, we think Darwinian evolution, that we adapt, that these functions slowly adapt over time. Mm -hmm. But there are three things that appeared seemingly out of nowhere. And one are bird feathers. You know, before there were feathers, there were just these appendages that were used for heat regulation. And then all of a sudden in birds, feathers appear for flying. It's just bizarre. There's no way to explain it. Uh, the second big mystery are the, is the placenta of mammals. Why were mammals? The placenta is an organ that just came out of nowhere. And the third thing is human language is quite unique. But part of the, uh, to get back to your, you know, the more specific question, every child will, without any help at all, will develop a, a, a sense of language. They'll, 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 they'll start putting together their auditory system with their parietal lobe, which has to do with understanding what uh, words meet, then with the frontal lobe, connections with the frontal lobes. And, and these uh, will develop uh, fairly quickly. And uh, one of the things is that there's a part of the brain that's used for one type of language and another part for another language. So they're next to each other, but these, these different modules so that in, in, in Japanese, uh, you can learn kanji and, uh, and what was the other one? I should know this, but anyway, there's, a, there's three ways of looking at it and they're all processed in different parts of the different circuits in the brain. Uh, if you go to Italy, uh, you know, if you can be, uh, speak, roman italian but then you have your local language and that is processed in a different part of the brain and and so we have these this is another example of these plastic systems but we, what we try to do i mean just practically is try to expose these kids to all the sounds so those sounds after they hear them up until three or four years old then they're fixed forever in their brain mm. uh, because they're going to be useful and they become tools and it's great for young kids now i say kids you know teenagers uh and in uh, millennials etc if they're able to speak without uh, any problem that is without an accent this makes the world their, their marketplace much easier hmm. and so we're trying to uh you know develop these these apps so that 
kids can be exposed to these sounds and they'll hold on to them forever. So that's one of the answers to your question is that a, a child has got to be exposed to those sounds that are going to be part of the language. If they don't, it's never learned correctly. So it may not be so, the language, it's just the, the, the components of the language. If they know that, they may not know any of the language, but later on they could pick it up because they understand the they, component. That's right. They got the linguistic toolbox ready. And then the second part of the, your question is that, you know, more on the left versus the right or dominant versus non-dominant hemisphere. The, you know, the dominant hemisphere will, will process more of the syntax and grammar and all the nuts and bolts, all the executive nuts and bolts of language. Mm -hmm. And that will occur, start occurring early. Uh, but later on, you, you start to be more open to the non-dominant hemisphere processing, which, which is more of the song of language, the mm. rhythm of language. So like if you have Swahili and Italian, they have the same song. Mm. It's you know, the, the accents on the penultimate syllable. And you, when you hear both of them, the, the dominant brain part, they're different words, but you recognize the song of it. And, and in some languages, uh, and I, I've heard these it, while I lived in Africa, you can hear the women will sing to each other in the afternoon and, and they're, they're, they're singing the emotional part of what they're saying. What exactly what they're saying is not important, but it's basically saying, I love you, you know, and uh, even though there are words there, it's still a song. Well, these different functions, dominant, non-dominant hemisphere functions, mm -hmm. you know, the grammatically correct function versus the rhythm, uh, it's also called the prosody, the prosodic uh, uh, sorts of processing. Well, it, you remember uh, Henry Kissinger, right? So mm -hmm. Henry Kissinger came to the country, uh, I think when he was, uh, was about 12, mm -hmm. right? And when he talks, he still talks like horrible, this. He never horrible. got used to it. Now his brother came like three years later, but he listened to his brother. He sounds like you and me. Mm -hmm. That's because he, he, the brother was exposed to this culture. So he was still plastic. That part of the language and the sound, it was still open. And so it really depends on when you're exposed to these things because they, they, they mature at different rates. And uh, so I hope that answers. That's two ways of looking at your question. No, that's awesome. No, that's and that actually brought me to another question I had from your book. You're talking about hemispheres as far as right-handed, left-handed, and and dominance. And now I have to uh, speak for myself or find things out for me. I am right-handed, left-footed, and left-eyed. Right. How does that break down? Well, the, uh, you know, the genetics of this is not really well known at all. And, uh, and, and like you, I'm, I'm left-handed, mm -hmm. uh, but right-eyed, and I can play golf and baseball either way. So I'm ambidextrous uh, mm -hmm. in that way, too. So there, you know, there are hardcore left-handers that are pure left-handed, but there's a whole other group of us that are mixed dominance left-handers. We're, we're fakes. You know, we're fakes. You're right-handed, but you're, you're mixed dominant. Uh, because you're, are you left-eyed or right-eyed? Left-eyed. Well, yeah, see, you're, that's actually rare. What you have is rare, that kind of mixed dominance. For, it's usually right, you know, right-handedness is so dominant, it's just you, do, you don't get a lot of mixed dominant people. So that's interesting that you're, you're like that. Uh, maybe you're just being oppositionally defiant. You know, this could be. My <laughs> <laughs> foot too. Right. Yeah. I was always called goofy-footed when I would get on a skateboard. Loopy. Yeah, all right. Oh, God. That's what I... You know, when they first came out, and it was must have been the early 60s, skateboards in the U.S., 
I think I was the first one in, in like in upstate New York to buy one. I really wanted one because I was a skier and, uh, you know, I started skiing and I stepped on it in my front yard. I slipped and I broke my ankle. That was my, I had one step on the skateboard, one step and mm. broke my ankle. Anyway, um, I, I, I don't miss skateboards. That's a quick way to end the habit. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's one. You're a notable called, risk taker. Yes. You didn't move on with I that. moved on. It was, uh, it's called one trial, <laughs> one trial learning. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Well, okay, going on with that further then, um, you're talking about the different sections of the mind and things like that, and we're obviously going to start leading into what exactly is the axis of empathy? Yeah, there's, you can, uh, you can ask people questions, what's, what's ethics and morality, and you get all sorts of answers. You can ask people, what's the difference, is there a psychopath and a sociopath? All kind of answers. And if you ask about empathy, uh, there are some people who say there's 10 kinds of empathy. Some, a lot of people, even the, some physicians I know, say there's only one empathy. So these are things that are, um, are, are quite elusive, really. But so what I do is just define what I mean by them, you know, and it's in, in, okay. uh, you know, based on the, the modern literature, if you will, in the past 10, 15 years about these things. So in terms of access of, of empathy, I, uh, the, the system I use is that there's like two axes. So just put across your hands in front of yourself, right? You got one here and one here. And at your, on the, uh, on the one end of your one arm, the one, one and the one axis would be emotional empathy. And this is that touchy feely empathy that most people uh, consider that when they say empathy, that's what they mean. And mm-hmm. it's the kind of empathy you want from a, a mate, a lover, a, uh, the best friend, uh, it's the kind of thing where when you're happy, they're happy. And when you're sad, they're sad. Your emotions mirror each other. They move together. You can feel what other people have. That's emotional empathy. And um, at the other end of that is cognitive empathy, which means that I don't feel your pain, if you will, but I understand it. I understand that you're in need or in pain. And so these are the two different things. Now, they're both. Would that be sympathy? Well, or compassion, you know, but again, the words are mixed. Compassion and sympathy are mixed with it, but a more cognitive okay. empathy, I would consider sympathy, yes. I'm sympathetic to your, what the problem is, yes. But other people use different words, but that's how I use it, just as you said it. And, okay. and so, and if you look at those, you know, if you have in your life only one or the other, it's not that great. Uh it's great to have somebody who you're very close to move emotionally with you, but then you mm-hmm. you want to have friends who sit down who don't get all emotionally tied up. Uh, you want your neurosurgeon and your thoracic surgeon not to get emotionally involved with you. You want a machine, right? And you want a machine that's going to help you. And so people with strong cognitive empathy, they go, okay, what's your problem? They sit down and go, A, B, C, D, and you can be telling the saddest story. They're not going to cry, but they'll go, right. okay, but they'll say, okay, we need to fix this. And, and so people with cognitive empathy are great for solving problems. And, you know, it's funny. I, I know two people that are heavily involved in Ely Masonary, that is charity and foundations. And they, they said that the, the people that give the most are, when, when I explained to them the difference in cognitive and emotional empathy, they said, no, people with cognitive empathy, they're not touchy-feely warm or anything. So those people usually don't give. They're just always like... They're always crying about things. They're always, their heart's always broken. Mm-hmm. But they don't actually give money or do anything. And, uh, right. you know, it's the same thing with, it's a very curious thing because uh, I asked them the same thing about, you know, politically. And they said, well, the people who usually give the most by far 
are conservatives or Republicans, whereas the Democrats mm-hmm. don't give it all. They, and it's and these both these guys are uh, these, these major uh, fundraisers. They're both Democrats and both lib, you know mm-hmm. regular liberals, not leftists, but they're liberals. So they don't like saying that, but it's a curious thing. And so you, I guess the you know most people want to have. You know, a, a really good friend that's going to cry with them, but they want a good friend that's just give me the cold truth. Let's get down to it. And so they're both very useful things. So that's one axis. Have you read um, Paul Bloom or heard of Paul Bloom's, uh, I believe it's called Against Empathy? Yes. Okay. That kind of discusses it. Yeah, yeah, he, I, yeah he, he discusses it. And it's, uh, I would agree to his kind of cold, hard approach because I, t- I take a very similar approach to that he does, you know, it's very similar in its tone. And it's, you know, how destructive empathy, what most people think, which is the emotional empathy, it's mm-hmm. not very helpful. It doesn't help the world usually. And, uh, and, and, in, and in relationships, that only goes so far. You know, if you want to have a good cry or a good laugh and a good hug with somebody, that's great. But after that's not so useful. And he has a similar sort of approach of the, kind of the dangers of just pure emotional empathy. Uh, now, the other kind of empathy, axis, on one end of it is called in-group. Uh, in-group, and then there's out-group. In-group means that you're going to, your default position in life is to do whatever is good for your immediate family or extended family. Uh, it can extend out to clan and tribe, but it's mostly your immediate or an extended family. That's the circle, you know, maybe a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the other end is out-group empathy. And the outgroup empathy are the people, it's like the honest Marxists, the nonviolent Marxists who love the world and they love the Gaia, you know, the Greens. Mm-hmm. Sure, a really sure. good, you know, good honest Green or, or a Marxist that is an internationalist. That is, they want to save the whole world. And, right. and then in the middle is kind of nationalism and clan and tribal affiliation. So it's on a spectrum like that. And uh, the second kind uh is not so as useful for personality disorder explanation, but it's useful for understanding politics. And uh, I know I, I would I, I'm asked to give talks to very funny different groups of people. You know, because I work with the military, I work with the Vatican, you know, with the Pope's yeah. group, and I work with, but also political groups and investment people. And, you know, it's it's this type of thing can be applied to almost every part of life, and that's what we're doing now. Uh, a number of us uh, is. You know, we study neuro X, neuro with anything else. So, and part of it, I gave a talk at a, an international investment firm, and uh, what the the chair of the there was, there was about thirty of them. It was a board, yearly board meeting in Aspen, and I gave a talk, and this was about oh early two thousand and sixteen, and um, so in it, I tried to explain you know different kinds of empathy, et cetera, as it affects economic behavior, political choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the chair of that was is a senator, a U.S. senator. So I gave mm-hmm. I gave the talk, and I and I you know in the end I said if when things are tough, uh, you know this cir- circumstance we're going through right now financially and there's a split in the society, I said Donald Trump's got to win just based on the uh, number of people who are wired for for in group empathy uh, versus out group empathy, but, you mm-hmm. know, and then people will circle the wagons and vote. And I said because of that. The situation said so Donald Trump has got to win, and he he was cracking up. But then he, he, he after the election, he gave me he called me up and he says, "How did you know that?" I said, "Well, it's just like it's it's understanding brain wiring and under what kind of pressures people's default position takes over." 
And they said, I got to jump in there now because you went down another path that I find fascinating. Scott Adams has spent a lot of time on this um, and stuck his neck out because he predicted Donald Trump would win two years ago. Mm-hmm. And everybody said he was nuts. Well, actually, three years ago. And uh, he's pointed out that right now we are going through a Trump derangement syndrome. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it is literally because of the um, cognitive dissonance that at the point where Trump won, it was considered such a default that he was going to lose by all the press, all the polls, everybody out there, and even the conservatives, if he had lost, or not even conservatives, there's arguments there, but right-wingers will say, even if he had lost, they would have been like, "Ah, yeah, here we go again, yeah, blah, 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 blah. But it was expected. Right. Yeah. It's expectation. Yeah. It's the expectations has has exploded the, the cognitive um, universe and made everybody crazy. Yeah. And there's all sorts of blame externalization going on. It's like a large part of the society is, has a personality disorder. It's just, it's, you know, because it's a denial. And when I say personality disorder, it's, um, and it's part of both discussions, I think. So I'll just mention it. If somebody has obsessive compulsive disorder, Everybody knows OCD, just a disorder, and they do obsessive and compulsive things and all these crazy thoughts, but they know they're crazy, right? And every time they walk by, they got to hit that thing three times. They say they know it's crazy, but somebody with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, this is what distinguishes personality disorders. They think that it's correct. And so people with personality disorders are brought out by these stressors because they will be in complete denial of what happened. And they will always seek to be, you know, blame externalization. It happened because this person cheated or lied or something. So it's very common. You find this in people. The derangement sy- syndrome that you're talking about is is really how people are with personality disorders. So it's almost like I push a bunch of people over the edge in this sense because they absolutely can't accept what happened. Now, I didn't vote for Trump, okay? But, but nonetheless, you know, you got to look at it with open eyes and say, what's going on? And I'm at the university, so almost everybody I know is either you know, is a Democrat <laughs> or a Marxist or something, you know. So that's so I'm just been submerged in it, and they just can't stand this kind of talk uh, because when you break it down in terms of personality disorder, I said this response is very psychiatric. It's uh, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, I have I have senior psychiatry professors telling me on the side, they'll go, "I hope he dies. I hope he gets assassinated." I can't even believe this. Um, and, and so it's re- when derangement is, is too kind a way to put it. It's really a quite pernicious, toxic, pathological, almost personality disorder coming up. Have, have you ever seen anything like it before? And the reason why I ask is I'm old enough. I remember that everybody hated Bush too in 2000 and there was still a whole, not my president, da, 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 but they calmed down. Oh yeah. The, the thing with <clears throat> Trump, I have never, and I, I think he eggs it on. I mean, his Twitter feed and stuff, and Scott oh, Adams yeah. has pointed that out, that he is a manipulator completely to the highest level. Um, he calls him, I, I think, a, a master manipulator or, or influencer. Yeah, he's using he games that man, yes, Yeah, completely. He loves this. And so the more they do of it, they're feeding into his wheelhouse completely. So they think they're getting to him, and he's just loving it. So this whole thing, and now they're starting to, you know, they use the, you know, the C word and the F-bombing, the children, the wife, the grandchildren. This is really very crazy. I've never seen that before. And, you know, I spent a lot of time because I work with, the, you know, the Pentagon and I 
you know, in the middle of the night, I watch old like documentaries about World War One, World War Two, eighteen twelve about wars and what happens in the lead up to wars. It's a, I think a lot of people are interested in this. I spend a lot of time looking for it to look for signs on when uh, a society turns right when when it goes over the edge and bombs. So I'm looking, and I can't help but look for the parallels, you know, uh, that go between the book, the uh, be, between. Between the wars and leading up to World War One, but before that, you know, the Napoleonic Wars leading up to it, you try to look for when the society changes, and this one definitely has. Oh my God! And uh, but it, it's if you want to understand what personality disorder is, because people don't know, just listen mm-hmm. to all this stuff. You know, when you get people who are senators and congressmen, people in Hollywood and major uh, media people calling the daughters and their wife, you know, the c word, and, and, and you know, they're mm-hmm. f bombing them. This is the sign of a serious, it's, it's, derangement is too kind a word for it. They, people are falling apart. Yeah, and I'm concerned about it. And that's kind of where I wanted to go in this conversation. I think it's an interesting path, but you know, sort of the macro down to the micro or individual. Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentalism, is that something that you study? Because you had mentioned studying uh, cultures and things right. like that. And I feel like fundamentalism, and by that, it's not only... Um, let's say Islamic or hardcore Christians, but also hardcore atheists. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Any, any, you know, unremitting, un, unforgiving belief system is uh, is is out at the edges, right? And it's usually a, a, a symptom of something. It's this absolutism, and it's just one of the symptoms of of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCDPD, personality disorder. And it's a specific one that has to do with religiosity. It's called religiosity. And these are people that are so sure and they become intolerant of everything else. And I, uh, you know, I gave a series of talks in London this past year uh, as a lead up to the release of all these Dow films, D-A-U. It's a series of mm-hmm. Russian films. I actually acted in. I'm not an actor, but the, here I am. Yeah, so. yeah. And so <laughs> I went over there, Ukraine and filmed that, but it could be very involved in the whole thing in the editing. And, but then they had a series of talks in the house of commons in London house of Lords. And then the last one I gave was at the Royal society of London. And I gave it with the ex head jihadist, the head of the jihadist in the UK. And he and I both gave a talk, you know, had a, like a panel, he gave a talk. And I came, I gave him my angle on the, um, you know, the, potential genetics and the you know brain circuitry of these people because I I've studied a lot of dictators as opposed, in addition to you know serial killers uh, and and part of it I, I didn't talk to him beforehand but I I had to make a connection with the the social sciences and humanities if you will between from the neuroscience so I uh, so I said you know every one of these fundamentalist ideas that whether religious fundamentalist, which includes atheism, is is religious fundamentalist too. Sure. And uh, as opposed to an agnostic, who's just like, well, I don't know, um, a very different thing. So, uh, and so people who are fundamentalist politically and religiously, uh, if you look at that, the best explanation I would recommend to people either read this or 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 listen to a, a, a video of it is it's all based, you know, since the eight since eighteen hundred around eighteen hundred. Uh, Joseph de Maestri, who is a French Savoy um, philosopher, politician, who was a complete wild man. I mean, this guy was too much. But anyway, and he spent part of his time in Russia and part of his time in England, part of his time in France and, and Sardinia. And so um, 
what he said is, is that basically to, to have a fundamentalist revolution, if you will, uh, whether it's, and, and he was mostly presaging and anticipating the Nazis and the Stalinists, that is, the communists and, and, the, uh, and the Nazis were basically the same thing, right? Sure. And there's sure. very little difference between them. I know people make a difference. With no, that's the, that you thing. Where when you get to the other ends, they're not apart. They're actually a you. Oh yeah, no, it was, no, they're together. almost identical. I mean, you know, Hitler started out as as a, as a communist, right? He's ah, well, they well they were competitors with the same people, and but anyway, Joseph to Maestri gave the reasons why that is the narrative for having these belief systems, and it's excellent. The best way to to understand this is to listen to. Isaiah Berlin's read of Joseph de Maestri. It's about 50 minutes long. You can get it on YouTube. So it's okay. yeah, Joseph de Maestri, and it's uh, Isaiah Berlin. And that gives a wonderful explanation for how people fall for Nazism, Stalinism, communism, but also, and I used it with this jihadist, and I said, here is what you do. Here are the steps. He goes, that's exactly it. And so uh, he told me this is what he was taught, this was the whole thing. So if anybody wants to really get a feel for that, any kind of fundamentalism like that, uh, you can find it with Isaiah's Berlin's uh, read of the Maestri. I'll definitely try and get that in the show notes. That is awesome. Yeah. Now moving down even further, um, this is where I get it gets really crazy, whatever. Um, I'm sure you're almost bored of it, but narcissism psychopathy, um, socio- sociopathy, whatever. They're, they seem to all kind of run together or they have components of each, but like what is a good difference between a narcissist and a psychopath? Well, you've, you've, hit, you've hit the nerve. Uh, and the nerve is the problem with these personality disorders is, and the reason why, there's a couple of reasons why they're, that these are rejected the DSM-5, you know, the psychiatric manual that that whole profession used, it's, you know, they don't really quite exist. And things like malignant narcissism and psychopathy haven't quite made it in, or in the case of malignant narcissism, were kicked out some years ago, like in 1964. And part of the problem is that there's so much overlap, just like you said, uh, in, in, you know, in terms of the kind of empathy, the, the narcissism being involved, and it's all a mix and match of these traits. So each one of them have about 15 to 20 traits. And if you just, you know, tick off, you know, an analyst will just tick off whether you have no, none of that trait, a little bit or a lot. And then you mm-hmm. add the points up and voila, that you have this categorical like psychopath or narcissistic personality disorder person. And it's if you score, you know, something, you know, X and above, you know, for psychopathy, if you use the hair test, which is the most widely used for criminals anyway, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's 28 or 30 points to 40. If you're in that, you're a categorical clinical psychopath. If you're not, you're not. But you can still have a lot of traits and not be over that limit. So a lot of people walking around who are borderlines and who mm-hmm. you know are sort of preclinical and, and, and only have some of the traits. Well, <clears throat> it's like going outside at night and, and, and hearing something fly by. You say, okay, you take your notes, you say, it flies, it makes little peeping noises when it flies, it catches bugs, and it has wings. And you go, oh, it's a bird. And then you find out, no, 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 it's a bat. You go, no, no, it was a moth. 
And so even though they have these traits, they're very different animals. And so part of the problem is because of the overlapping traits, uh, these have become very sticky. So when we do psychiatric research, that is we're using genetics and imaging, very formalized mm -hmm. statistics and psychometrics, we try to regress these traits, uh, regress the traits, not the categorical definition like you're a psychopath, but you know, do you, you know, what level of narcissism do you have, what level kind of empathy you have, how much aggression, all the way to anxiety, et cetera. And, and that's very useful. And we use that for all sorts of psychopathologies. We've written a lot of papers on this and do clinical trials using this. Uh, people, the average person or the average juror or the average cop or, or policeman, I, I, I meet a lot with um, DAs and judges, et cetera, uh, they can't handle that. They like black and white. So people sure. want to say, do I have it? Do I have cancer? I don't have cancer. Is he guilty or you're not guilty? And the real answer, especially if it involves biology, especially if it involves genes and behavior, is always a gray, well, maybe, or it's a little bit of this and that. Nobody wants to hear that. And, and it's our legal system and our insurance system is, is not set up for that kind of reality, which is the real way scientists look at it, because people don't have enough, the background to understand it or the time. They say, just tell me, is it A or B? And, and this is a problem with understanding it. Just part of the good thing that we're having this conversation, I'm trying to get to those grades and how you know scientists and how clinicians look at it. And so uh, that's that's part of the problem is the all well, this overlap. So I uh, this this uh, colleague of mine is just coming out with a book in the fall about dictators and, and tyrants and everything, and he has mentioned all these uh, different variants of these personality disorders including the dark triad. Now, the dark triad is about the worst thing it can be. It's got all of the worst of everything, including sadism. You know, okay. to be a psychopath, sadism and really violence is not part of it. People think it is, mm. but they're, they're, most psychopaths are not sadists. Uh, and they're not, they're not violent physically, but they are violent on you by manipulating you, et cetera. And is that where Charlie Manson might fall in? Cause I don't think he ever did anything. I think he did. He, he did, you know, he, he was involved in, uh, directly killing people, but they could never pin that on him. Uh, oh, okay. he manipulated other people. So a lot right. of times you can see it in terrorist organizations. You can see it when we looked at parents of, 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 of serial killers. There's usually the older guy is the psychopath. But the guy that pulls the trigger is a sociopath, usually a young guy who's a loser, feels like a loser. He's getting DC killers. Exactly, the DC killer. The, the, the older pair, the older of the pair was a psychopath. The younger was a sociopath. That is, he knew what he was doing was wrong, and he had some remorse about it. The older guy, the psychopaths never feel remorse and everything. But there's much part of it. They're manipulating these sociopaths, just like Charlie Manson did. With uh, Some of the uh, members of Charlie's family were psychopaths, but a lot more sociopaths. And, you know, it was always sold, well, this is your average middle-class kid. Nonsense. These, these were, you know, really the prostitutes and runaways. They hated their family and everything. So it's just to try to scare you into it. And, and not everybody. They're broken. Huh? They're broken. They're broken, but they're not necessarily like genetically wired psychopaths. But something happens to them. They're either, uh, you know, uh, they're abused somehow or they're bullied. And maybe they're eight or ten or something. Not in the family. And they're going to get even with the world. And that's the sociopath. But they know what they're doing is wrong. Uh, psychopaths just do so, it for game. So would Kaczynski then be more of a sociopath? Well, with the uh, LSD tests on him and things like that, that maybe he got created? He, he, he seems more like a sociopath, a really ticked off. It's funny, his brother, his younger brother, of course, is like a poet. He's really like mellow and everything. And so mm -hmm. 
And people have a hard time, especially juries, you know, and defense attorneys have a hard time with that because you always have these siblings. One is an angel and one is really bad. And they say, well, you must just choose to do this because your genetics are the same and your, uh, and your upbringing is the same, which is completely wrong. It's just absolutely wrong uh, conclusion. But, yeah, I mean, t- Ted Kaczynski is, you know, certainly a sociopath. Uh, whether he is, a, you know, a psychopath or not, you have to talk to people, right? You have to be analyzed. You can't, you can't see, like, from genetics or from imaging, you can't say, oh, you're a criminal or, you're, you know, or, uh, you have a personality disorder. You have to actually sit down with a qualified psychologist or psychiatrist who's an expert in personality disorders and psychopathy, especially, uh, and, and spend some days, some time with them because they have to get inside your head to see what your view of it is. And that would determine whether you're a psychopath or sociopath, right? Is right. by doing that, it's your ideas about it and your mentation about it. And that, that's why the, the Goldwater rule was, was, was created back in the late sixties. Uh, when uh, the psychiatrists who, who didn't like Goldwater, he's conservative and everything, so they said he was all mentally incompetent and crazy. And after that, there was a Goldwater rule that no psychologist or psychiatrist can say that about a public figure. Ah, and so well, it hasn't stopped them this round. Oh, no. they. Well, they, <laughs> but those were, it was like, well, somebody from Yale and they're really important professors. They're not. They're young, usually young, you know, untenured associate professors trying to make a name for themselves, and they'll make that mistake, <laughs> and they did. Uh, it's a no-no. It's not only an ethical no-no, but it's technically a no-no because you can't know. You can't say, right. oh, Donald Trump is this or, or Obama was that. He's got to be fully analyzed because uh, the difference between just being a narcissist and having NPD is a huge difference, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, if, you're an, if, you're, if you think you're the best at something and you, you know, for Ali, Muhammad Ali, I loved him. I mean, mm-hmm. just great. He said, I'm the best. Well, nobody ever called him a narcissist because it was true. You know, right. you, you can't have NPD if it's true. So, you know, with I know people love to hate Trump and they love to hate other politicians. Uh, I just mm-hmm. gave a talk in New York on uh, Putin, you know, right before the election. Oof. And they wanted me to say he was, you know, he was evil and everything. And I went and I've given a couple of talks on Putin. But, I, you know, I tell him you can't do this, really. I, we went through it as a game, as a parlor game. But sure. to write a paper on a public figure who has not been thoroughly psychiatrically analyzed is a huge no-no for several very important reasons. Sure. He's dangerous, but you can't diagnose him directly. Exactly. And he's just dangerous by one of, of his power. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> rules any, anybody with power is dangerous, <laughs> right? Any, any, so. any drug with power is dangerous. Anything with power, by, by definition, is dangerous. Now, that kind of um, lends to a couple other um questions on that you mentioned the hair exam yeah and that makes me start thinking about like john douglas who has made a bit of a career off of being this master mentalist profiler of um serial killers yeah and i don't know if you're familiar with with his work and his fame not too much no i've heard i've, I've heard about him read a little bit like wikipedia but silence of the lambs yeah, all yeah. Of that kind of spun out of it <laughs> yep um, Malcolm, um, sorry, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. um, did kind of a takedown of him mm-hmm. and the whole, uh, FBI profiling angle and saying that it isn't necessarily a science or even a pseudoscience. It's more of a pile of confirmation bias. 
Well, part of that is true. And I, I've met Malcolm. I know, I, I know him and uh, met him, but we didn't have a discussion about that specifically. But I work with people in the FBI in Scotland Yard in the uh, BAU uh, and work with writers, too, writers of TV and movies about this. And we have a ongoing discussion about all these different uh, cases. And uh, for them, the really well-known ones, when I look at it, they, they a lot of times are not using real psychology or psychiatry. They're looking at behavioral patterns that fit some codified pattern that they have. It's more of a taxonomy of a murderer rather than understanding the deep psychology of, of that. And so, mm-hmm. um, so th- that's part of it. They, they are more practical, I would say. You know, this is how it's happened. And, and one, one guy who's really good is, is Jim Clemente. And he was uh, maybe number two or three at the, the BAU at Quantico. And then he came out. He was the main advisor on the FBI BAU for like Criminal Minds and some other other shows. And he really knows his stuff. I know Jim. And, and he, he, sees the, he sees it from the psychology and the biological point of view and from that artsy sort of getting a feel. I've been around so long. I have a feeling about this crime scene and everything where you put it all together. So it's part art, part science. But um, a, a lot of it that does not have like decades of experience and they know the science of it and they know, well, it could be looked at as a pseudoscience because it's all, it's what people like. I just have a feel, I have an intuition about it, you know, that nonsense. Mm-hmm. But it's useful if you really have knowledge because the intuition right. is just a collection of 40 years of, of detailed knowledge, right? And that becomes uh, an intuition. It, doesn't mean it's coming out of you know some sort of ESP thing, uh, and so that's that's just a, a tool. But how you prove it is another thing. And so I'm basically not answering your question directly. That's okay. Uh, you know, it's it's how I look at generally at that that issue because I work with those people. Could it be Dane? Uh, could you go down a blind path though? I mean, do, do you have controls in place? For example, um, back to the DC killers. I don't think that uh, an older and a younger black male were high on the minds of the profile as they were generating it. No, and in fact, Jim Clemente's, he, he, he looked at it, it was kind of like one of, the, one of the dogs not barking, one of the hounds not baying at night. And he looked for the empty spaces in the crime, mm. uh, as opposed to where you would look. And he looked at those, those empty spaces and it was the white van. It's like, what is, completely doesn't make sense. It's sort of been seen a lot. Uh, and, and that was it. That was the clue. So he's the one that found that by looking at the empty spaces in the usual crime scene like that. Yeah. And so he used intuition and then put it in in verse, you know, it's not like what's there, but what is, what is, what is, what is, what is not there? That's what that is, what is missing that's there and vice versa. And that's what he did. So he did, it's not just. Uh, deduction and induction is abduction. It's a kind of an inductive deductive loop of, right. of, of, of what you see, what's obvious and the empty spaces and what the meaning of that is. Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, let me see. Oh, I had a side question for you. You've been on a bunch of shows, which is awesome, man. Congratulations on that. And you've been interviewed a lot. Um, I had a previous guest, Brian Dunney. He's actually putting together a documentary right now that is called science friction. And the premise of it is a lot of scientists have been interviewed for shows, especially dealing with the supernatural or this or that. And they're coming out saying these people 
have not only misquoted me, they've edited me together in a way to make me say a statement that I didn't even say. Has that ever happened to you or have they been pretty good with you? I think of- people have been pretty good because I think since I'm just almost a psychopath that if they misquote me, I'll come and kill them or something. <laughs> it comes in, it's like, don't get mad at me type. I'm really like a pussycat. Uh, but no, people I think have been very good, very uh, responsible. Uh, the problem is, of course, TV, where you've got, because I've been on CNN a bunch of times and another CBS, mm-hmm. and you, you do not have time to explain it because, you know, none of biology and certain nothing not of psychiatry can be explained. The way the brain works is you set something up, you tear it down, you rebuild it, inhibit it. This is how the brain circuits work. And, and you can't set up the answer. There's no time even set it up so you always end up telling not a something that's kind of untrue so the very nature of tv like these you know these short interview tv shows well that's why i asked you how much time do we have because if it's too short it's very difficult to do because you've got to set up this background information that is not people usually don't know enough about to contrast it with anything it's like what have we learned well you gotta you know Put something there, like what, what people think and what the possibilities are, and then go at it that way. And so t- TV is usually the problem, and, uh, and not radio. Radio is great. I mean, especially a podcast that's up to almost an hour long. You know, people cool. really are interested, like you're doing. And, mm. and the questions you're asking are very hip, by the way, and quite good. Okay, so, yeah, I agree totally. Um, Long-form um audio, et cetera, I think is just fantastic for an opportunity for both sides to really get a voice out. I personally like tangents because you'll say something and like, oh wait, let me ask about that. Never mind, you know, five of my questions sure. over there. That's no, great. I love I'm loving this. Yeah. Um, speaking of tangent, George Carlin is a family friend. Tell us more. Well yes, George Carlin, uh when I uh, my mother and my aunts were brought up by a uh, by a family that were uneducated. You know, my grandfather was from Sicily. He came over at about 11 years old, lived on the streets. It was just, just on the streets in New York, Brooklyn, and then uh, part of Little Italy. And that's how he got along. And he met my grandmother, who came over from Sicily separately, and met at a, at a, at a uh, he, he was a musician, so she fell in love because he was the head guitarist and all this stuff like that. And they had kids, and what he said he was just so he was completely uneducated. He says, I, "If I have daughters, we have daughters. I'm going to make sure they go mm-hmm. to college." And this was back in like you know, 1910 or 15, or you know, some really a long time ago when this was unheard of. And so, was, and so all of my aunts on that side went to college, and all of them went to professional school too. Like my mother went to college; they all were you know teachers or something like that, undergraduate. And the graduate school, my mother went to business school, and and my uh, one of my other aunts went. Um, to Columbia and became you know a nurse and then the head of nursing there, and so while she was there she needed a place to stay. So while she was at Columbia in Manhattan, uh, she went looking around for places and she went in and talked to this woman uh, who was near Columbia, and I'm looking for a room. She said, "Well, yeah, my son is left and he's now out on the road. You know, he's in he's a comedian, and you can stay in his room." So my aunt, the year she was at Columbia, stayed in George Collins' room. So. Uh, uh, George Carlin got a lot of his biting humor from his mother, you know, it was like, uh, and so they became family friends and, and it was, it was great knowing him. So we knew it through my aunt from back in the fifties all the way through, 
Well, you know, when we came out here, I, I get the call from, you know, George to, because he, he I, I try to get him help with some people in his family, and he always thought he was getting Alzheimer's really? disease. And, yeah, I would be sitting here at dinner time, and it, you know, the phone would ring, and, and on the other end, go, Jim, I'm going crazy. <laughs> and they're going, and people, we'd be sitting there at dinner, people, who's that? So it's just George Carlin. They say, he bought some, you know, we're, you know, something. And, and so I helped him that way, but I also used to go up and, um, and he, when he did his small, you know, his, his, his beta testing sure. of his, Tiny of his bits, I went up these little teeny, you know, bars and go up and listen to him. And I would have to sit near, you know, white women and then white guys and the black guys and to listen to what they were saying <laughs> to give him feedback the next day. Oh, I mean, this was the most hysterical thing, which is going through the next day, uh, getting feedback from the people who are sitting next to the table. I was at. He was great. And he helped us with all sorts of charities and, uh, you know, you know, raising funds, and he was really brilliant guy, and yeah, I mean, yeah. That's probably why he thought he had Alzheimer's. I can't imagine that high of a functioning individual not oh. getting their own thoughts just jambled because they're so fired up all the time. Yeah, so he's always on, and uh, but a very, very serious guy. You know, most comedians are very serious. And he he was, and uh, well, what a linguist he was! And he was so smart. I got, he was great. My family loved my kids. You know, they, they helped my kids out, raise money, and everything. And and uh, so he was. He was had cool. me an honor. He was my. Yeah, it was. He was my first it couple was. concerts I ever saw of any kind of act. Oh yeah, I mean just. Uh, it, and, but he was always worried that he was losing his mind. He really did, and you know, so I. Uh, in Orange County, and there's some really good uh, Alzheimer's uh, neurologists like Rod Shankle and some other people. And and Rod, uh, you know, helped him and his family also work with Muhammad Ali. And they get out of L.A. You get out of L.A. or New York because if you come down to Orange County, then nobody knows what you're doing, right? And you don't want to be found out. And it was very safe for him to come down here. As most people I know, you know, really well-known people, they'll come down, they'll, they'll hook them up with physicians or dentists, you name it. And they know that they'll be left alone in Orange County. It's just, uh, you know, in L.A. or in New York, it's just too many people watching everything you do. I, I can imagine you have a hard time leaving the house, in too, Hampton, right? In Virginia, I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite to that celebrity level yet. But you're going to put me on the map, personally. Oh, yeah, right, right. So um, so this was good. You were, I'll tell you, um, you know, you didn't make me go over any old territory, but you, you you started asking me things I'm really interested in. So that's hats off to you. I mean, you really had a, had a very good feel for for this uh, what you're doing. So that's great. I thank you for that. Um, I'll say. Oh, by the way, we go back. Both go back to King John. It appears and King Edward. Oh, really? But okay. then I yeah. read somewhere that's that cool. every almost everyone in America goes to King John or something. I, but, well, not really. The thing is, how do, you got to prove right. it, and the, the thing is proving it. We and we have three lines that go back, and and but you have to have proof. And and I we've got in our family uh, a real honest goodness uh, archivist and a another archivist who's a newspaper editor, the chief editor, and he, they both do a lot of the research, and they're tough. They yeah. will not, they don't believe anything, but they found all these connections we had and really researched them down to the end and and uh, and have found all the connections and many people have connections but you have to have somebody 
or a couple of people like that who know how to do it, do it honestly, and be really rigorous. And uh, and they they found that we have three sets of grandparents that were all in the Mayflower. They're signers of the Mayflower Compact. Three different groups. And there, you know, there are other people like that, but the thing is to prove it to yourself, you know, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's great fun to do that. Um, in, in our case, it's a little troublesome because we have three of those grandfather lines. It's, it's loaded up with right. bad actors, murderers and everything. So, you know, it's, it's, it used to be, if you found a, a horse thief in your family, it's great fun. And, and we have Lizzie Borden and, and, and actually people right. more direct. But we have three lines of them, so it's like, when does genealogy become genetics? Is is you know, that's where uh, 23andMe and some of that stuff is, is really kind of getting interesting, too, because it's reinforcing genealogy. Like, oh, uh, there's my second cousin. Oh, 23andMe. There they are. Yeah. Uh, oh, it appears that it does line up. Yeah, the genealogy and the genealogy lines up, if, if not the, the genetics, the real genetics. And, um. They're always, you know, 23andMe and some of these other gene geographic and genealogical groups, they're always about 10 to 12. I, I know the people, the CEO and people who run 23andMe have had discussions with them at the, at the, at the Google meetings of how to read this stuff, you know, and, and, and what to, you know, um, and the types of genetic testing. So they're, you know, all of the ones, even the best ones are about 10 years behind what we do experimentally because we look at, you know, there's like 22,000 genes, coding mm -hmm. genes. And it's like the warrior gene and anxiety gene, all this stuff like that. And, you know, for each complex adaptive behavior, there's, you know, there's probably about 350 of them. There are about 15 to 20 main genes, coding genes, that uh, help determine those. And, you know, personality, basic personality is mostly genetically determined. And, and then you throw in epigenetics, the environment, sure. when it happens, changes that. Um, but... Uh, so as as part of that, that is only about five or eight percent of our genetics. And so, you know, experimentally, we look at all the mm -hmm. other stuff, and that is the regulators of the regulators. So it's not just the promoters and insulators, but we look at now what are called uh, uh, retrotransposons. And retrotransposons are little short pieces of DNA that have been taken up over millions of years, and even in, in more recently. Uh, from things like retroviruses, like HIV. So viruses and bacteria, you know, they use us and we use them. So we use those sequences and it's part of us. So we're looking at those as kind of the adjudicators between the main genes, mixing and matching and different, how they're brought together. And so we've done studies with this on uh, the regulation of positive and negative emotion, having to do with these transposons. And we've published on the role of transposons in uh, schizophrenia. And we look at the full genetics and imaging and then the psychometrics, all those measures. And now we've, we've added transposons. The thing is, it's hard to get this unless you know somebody or part of a clinical trial where all of this is done. It's very expensive. And it takes a lot of human power to interpret the stuff. So there's 23 million. What's happening experimentally in, in, in labs, the main labs, is quite different. And, and But there's a catch-up period where it becomes, you know, uh, it's where it's going to be affordable, more affordable, but it's usually seven, eight years beforehand to go. And then you got to have the people interpret it because it's hard, it's hard stuff to interpret. Okay. You know what? Um, not to spin back on that, but you were bringing up genetics, epigenetics, and I was considering, because you were obviously shaped by both genetics and epigenetics or your environment. Um, would you yeah. agree that you could throw culture as a 
and possibly third leg on that in terms of, for example, the United States has more serial killers than anyone else on the planet, but then we have a particular type of culture that's very atomistic. And let's say Eastern cultures are, are much more collective. And while they may have them, perhaps the fabric of their culture itself can help influence what people do or don't do. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, it's a good question. And I, and I still don't quite know about that. I did a study. I was going over to, I went over to North Africa, to the Sahara, and I was following around um, Bedouins and Berbers, that's Arabic and non-Arabic mm-hmm. nomads. I was interviewing them and I took, did their genetic analysis because we're looking, we were interested in, in how and when war began. You know? mm-hmm. And, and in, in interviewing, the Discovery Channel called me up and said, what are you doing? And I told them this, so they sent over a crew nice. um, uh, to kind of follow, follow me around doing this. And, and so in, as part of that, we found that, first of all, um, none of the people I interviewed and either the Berbers and the, or the Bedouins ever heard of anybody being murdered or, or, or be put to death. And they went through four generations. There's all these elders and they have all this knowledge and everything, but at least four generations, either one, they had never heard of that. And I said, well, how do you deal with these things? And as we we're going along those days, I was looking at the kids and the kids were like any kids anywhere. They're fighting and scrambling and everything. And I noticed how the older, the adults, parents and the adults, let them do it. They let the kids fight for about five minutes, and then they sat them down and they kind of had it out. Who, who said what? And they, they did the same thing with the adults. And it was very Sicilian. Hmm. Okay, we had these elders sit down. You let people fight it out. Uh, it's not like here. Today, you don't allow hmm. any fighting. There's none of that normal the ecology of kids hmm. growing up and having, you know, having the arguments and the fights, and then you sit them down. None of that's allowed, so it's all built up, and, and that may be part of the answer. Um, and so for them, they let the, the kids and the adults really blow their steam and even let some punches be thrown. And then they would sit them down, and they would say, okay, you do this. And if they didn't agree to do it, well, they had the ultimate. They got, if they had to, there was no capital punishment, but they sent them out of the, out of the, out of the tent into the desert, which is pretty much a death sentence. And, um, and, you know, so I look at, you know, part of that, the cultural part of something I know, which I, you know, studied and looked at, was that the uh, letting the people fight with each other just long enough before any blood is drawn, mm-hmm. and kids, and then adjudicating it after that. With a, let's talk about mm-hmm. this. And then, uh, but also, it reminded me of something I'd never thought of, which is the environmental effect. That is, this is the desert. I mean, it's a harsh it's a Sahara desert. It's unbelievable. Sure. And I remember I gave a talk at uh, Google Zeitgeist, it's C-level people at Google. And I, I mentioned this, and Larry Page, who was a you know, CEO, and he goes, he was he gave a talk right after me, and he goes, he says, I never thought of it, because what I said is, if they held Burning Man, because I go to Burning Man, and he's been, you know, he goes to, and never had Burning Man, like in downtown San Francisco with all those people, it'd be fights and sh- you know, be shooting, but up in that playa, that that high playa, it's, it's severe. Everybody behaves really well. You have to, and so there's another type of environmental effect, which is just the physical climactic environment, weather, environment. Uh, but also the social thing you talked about is, do, you know, do you let people fight it out for a bit before you know, breaking up the fight? And that doesn't happen here anymore. It's not allowed. And so I think a lot of things are built up. That's a guess. I don't know that that's true, but it's just not sure. We also. Um... Are we encourage independence a whole lot more 
our family groups are nowhere near as tight, multi-generationally, things like that. I, I wonder if that's starting to break it up. Like, if the family's together, you had mentioned your mother, um, you credit so much, but your mother talked to the teachers and the community, and you, know, you were kept extremely busy. So that means that everybody is aware, huh? you know, he behaves a little differently at times or whatever, so we need to do right. this. But now, what do you mean my kid is not doing that? No, exactly. It wouldn't be, that, that's true. So it, we, you know, I grew up and my generation grew up in a golden time where those things could happen, where there was that, uh, that, that fluid exchange of observations and ideas uh, with people, that, you know, either teachers and neighbors and everything, and, and people used it to the advantage of the, basically the kids, right? And, uh, and you don't have that anymore. There's so many taboos, uh, weird taboos too. I mean, because, so as, as hypersexuality goes up, the, the taboos against it go up too. It's an odd thing. And so there's no self-regulation. There's no organic self-regulation of these behaviors. It's all imposed from without, like you'd have in the Soviet system, right? Or, or you know, or a Maoist type of thing is these things are allowed and only these things and these things are all forbidden. And these are all their snitches everywhere who tell on you. Well, I mean, that's kind of, it feels like where we're, you know, headed a bit. And uh, but it starts like this with this, with these um, prescriptions and proscriptions on behaviors and how you can talk about it with, you know, friends and family and teachers, et cetera. Whereas it was more open and organic, I think, when in our particular generation. And I think in the Gen Xers, too. The Gen Xers yeah. had that more organic feel, and even some of the Gen Y people, the millennials and the ones now, it's, it, it seems very foreign. I know it's easy for, you know, when you get older mm -hmm. to say that, but I ask Gen Xers and Gen Y people, too, they go, yeah, I mean, it's like they're in a different world. Mm -hmm. So there are people that are 35, 40 telling me this, going, it's so bizarre. So I, uh, so I, you know, I agree with, I agree with you, but I don't know, you know, the experiments have not been done, you know, and, and you have to look at, these type of experiments are long term. You have to look 20, sure. 30 years down the line, and we don't have that. So it's all guesswork. And it's kind of hard to um, figure that out anyway. <laughs> anyway, look, yeah, because I mean, there's so many things interacting. It's like, well, you know, you pick a boogeyman and blame it on that. You know, this is like, I don't like him, so I'll blame him. And, it, and it's almost, uh, it gets like uh, superstitious. You know, the volcano goes off because the tribe next door is full of sinners. So this is the, you know, Pele is, is blowing this volcano. It's, you're getting to that Mag magical thing, magical thinking at its worst. Now I have another um, whiplash um, change of direction. We've got, we've been suffering a lot of mass shootings lately. And I guess I have a couple of questions. One is a mass shooter necessarily a psychopath or are they something different? And two well, by definition, they're okay. sociopaths. But uh, these are these are the like uh, many of the terrorists. These are the young losers, usually quiet losers uh, who have been bullied. I mean, it's a very mm -hmm. similar pattern. And the girl, girls who go out with them, and they're made fun of, and they're mm -hmm. a little strange. And um, and that's what many of them are. And and some of them, of course, do have are on some of autism. Some are schizoaffected. Some are on the schizophrenic. Uh, spectrum, uh, but the other ones that are psychiatrically intact, you know, by every other means, are these uh, these these young lo losers who's been bullied and they feel out of society, and it's. But there are people who are eccentric, 
And, you know, it's funny because people who are eccentric, it's the only group that's completely protected against psychiatric disorders. It's the strangest thing. You know, the kind of the strange oh, yeah, guy, yeah. the nerd. And these guys, these guys never have psychiatric disorders. It's like a protected, but they're a little strange. So you know, I'd hate to say, you know, you hate to give the idea that, you know, some quiet, loner, nerd, geeky guy, the ones that don't, mm -hmm. it's not them. You know, because those guys are just, they're eccentric. And they, you know, these people create stuff and they're very interesting. But the ones who are, um, who, who are outsiders and loners who have been bullied, they have they can find ways to get even. They, and that's what looks like what has happened. Is there um, possibly a tie? Because one thing that seems to be coming up a lot is a lot of them are in SSRIs. Uh, you know, the, um, the thing about the treatment of depression, and uh, we got into this business of this personalized medicine for psychiatry about over 20 years ago. And so that's why with all the stuff, we have imaging and genetics. And, uh, and, and, and so to come up with the right sort of medication, uh, uh, we use all these things so we can nail it immediately. That this person should be on that kind of drug. This person should not be on drugs at all. Cognitive behavioral therapy or they undergo RTMS stimulation of the brain or there's a sleep deprivation. So by doing these clinical trials over the years, we know how to personalize it. Because otherwise, what you end up doing is this chance the way psychiatry has always been done, which is this chance sort of giving the person this drug for a few months and now that didn't work and let's make them miserable with this drug mm -hmm. and go back and forth. It's like the worst. So that's what you know, we've been 20 years. That's our, the main job of our lab really has been that is to come up with the right med if a medication is, is warranted. We just need, you know, cognitive therapy or whatever. And, and so, uh, and it's, and, and here's the main point. There is a, a thing called the Yerkes Dotson principle, and Yerkes Dotson, mm -hmm. two guys, uh, and they come up with this, which is has to do with the change of a behavior, the performance of something uh, across some other measure, right? So the dose of a drug or the dose of a genetics, uh, and it's this inverted U-shaped curve. So people that are on the low end of the curve, right, and they're kind of genetically set there. You give them a drug. Like, let's say, um, you know, for autism, not for autism, let's say for ADD, okay? So you have Ritalin for ADD, you have attention disorder, frontal lobe dysfunction. And so what you do, because they have a low function of that dopamine system, by adding that, it sends them up the curve so their performance and it becomes optimal. But some people with the same disorder are already genetically on the other side of the hill, so if you give them the same drug, it sends them worse. It gets worse and worse. And so there are people who have been prescribed drugs, especially for depression and for bipolar. And, and if you're not properly fully diagnosed with all these modern genetic and imaging techniques, you end up with people who you give the same drug, SSRI or Ritalin or something like that, and they're already over the hill genetically. And so you give them exactly the worst thing. So that's why with Ritalin, you know, with some kids uh, with ADD, it works great. And then there's a bunch that makes them much worse. So this is kind of the showing sure. of that principle. And everybody's genetically set so that all these transmitter systems that are involved, like dopamine and serotonin, norepinephrine, it's not just the level, but the receptor level and the transporter levels, all these different parts of that system, the receptors, uh, that you have to find out where they are genetically because it's different for everybody. And so there's a lot of misdiagnosis. So you can be given drugs for a depression that can make it absolutely worse. And that's the, that's the, 
you know, these are all these disorders, whether it's schizophrenia, or depression, bipolar, it's really a family of disorders that are related, but genetically different. It may look superficially mm-hmm. the same, but the deep reasons, the genetic and, and brain connection reasons and pharmacological reasons are, are opposite, you know, so you can, you come out with the same sort of uh, pathology for different reasons. So then you start adding the wrong drug, it just makes it worse. So some of this may be a misdiagnosis, not in terms of depression, but what kind of depression, and you know, uh, and what these drugs. So that's kind of a general answer to some of those problems. It's the wrong drug. Does, does it concern you at all that um, every commercial and television outside of the lawyer that you can hire to sue you from the pharmaceutical um, pharmaceutical company that gave you a drug is telling people to ask their doctor about filling the blank drug, and it may not be relevant to them? Well, that's yeah. I mean, it's. Like a huge problem, sure. I mean, it, it, to find out what somebody has and the best way to go about it takes time and it's kind of expensive. And we try to make it as cheap mm-hmm. as possible, right? To come up with these cert, we go through a lot of people scanning and these, these trials can take five, 10, 20 million dollars. But then we try to get to a couple cheaper things that will really get you there, right? If they uh, if they have this combination of genetics, this, these two genes with this sort of EEG or some pattern, then this is probably the drug they need, not the other ones. So the, you got to remember, these are all a whole family of disorders, and you can get to the same place behaviorally uh, through through different means. And if you had the wrong drug, it sends them down the really a deadly path. Do you have any path. thoughts of, um, I don't know, have you heard of um, Dr. John Rady? Um, he wrote um, Spark, and he kind of no. has gone into a lot of studies about exercise science and the effects on the brain. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, how through exercise, sometimes the body can help regulate or, or help the brain heal. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. Um, I come from a family of pharmacists that are really all into this and into neurotropics and nootropics, which are very important, you know, those sort of nutraceuticals and related compounds for brain function. So these nootropics, N-O-O-tropics, these seem to be really helpful in, you know, in tuning the brain to perform at a higher level with no risk. So those those are really good, uh, you know, where some drugs, or some regular you know, prescription drugs can be dangerous uh, to use. So, uh, so uh, you know, measuring those parameters of you know, heart, you as a heart and lung machine, but also your metabolites, sugar metabolism, and all of that can be very important. I, I know for me, I, you know, I'm surrounded by all these docs that are in great shape and they're running all the time. Uh, most of them have had fathers and uncles who died of heart attacks in their 50s, so they're really running scared mm-hmm. a little bit. And, uh, you know, and I, my weight varies like 100 pounds. And, and it's, and uh, what I um, graphed over years and years is my productivity. The number of patents I've written, papers, uh, creative things, paintings, and other things like that, um, against my weight. And, and it, it turns out that the, the more out of shape, the fatter and less exercise I am, the more productive and creative I am. There's no wow. question about this. And when I get into shape, I can't think of anything. All I am is like, uh, I just look better, but I can't do anything. And so, you know, this, but some people really need to be in great shape, right? So there's another thing where you would imagine, it's going to make sense, well, you should be in good shape because that's good for your brain. In my case, it's absolutely wrong, and, and but for many people, it would be right. So again, you have to know yourself, right, where you are. And so for some people, they feel great exercising, feel great after exercising, their, and their, you know, their, their cognition can, can improve. 
but you have to find out if you're that kind of person. I mean, if you look around, a lot of creative people are just, they look like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> you know, they don't even move, for God's sake. They look, you know, it's like Nero Wolf. And it's just a blob on a couch, and they do all these Orson things, Wells. thinking and everything. So, Orson Wells. Orson Wells, you know, you know for, so for every, every person with a 30-inch waist that's running every day, you know, you can come up with about it. You know, you can come up with a couple of thousand, you know, fat guys out of shape who are changing the world. So I, you know, it's a question. Is it, I think my answer is it's, it's always good to be in shape and exercising. But um, whether it's important, you, you've got to, you know, really know yourself. And all those parameters haven't been worked out. There are people who are at clinical trials that are going on that have to do with these, these more or less subtle effects of the interaction of nutrition, you know, the metabolome and uh, exercise. And it's, oh, it's always a good, good idea if you like it. If you don't like it, some people, it's just a drag, you know? So why torture yourself? You'd be at Orson Welles or Jabba the Hutt and just be <laughs> fine. So for those people that are made miserable by it, why do it? But for those people who can handle it, oh, it's, it's always a great idea. And, you know, the, the brain and the body really regulate themselves, right? They're really very good. But if you want to tune yourself up to get the extra 10, 15% mm -hmm. of excellence, uh, then uh, for most of those people who may be, you know, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, people some older, uh, staying in shape and, 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 and getting your metabolism right with these nootropics and nutraceuticals seems to be that, you know, really a, there's a lot of good data on this, which I never would have thought, but it's there. So uh, I, that's how I look at it. But then again, I'm Jabba the Hutt. Final <laughs> question. Um, do you find the brain and its state to be fixed or do you find it to be multiple and healable? I missed the uh, do you find the, the brain to be fixed and set? Essentially you're born, it's a framework, you're going to wind up that way or do you think it is actually moldable and healable over time? Yeah, I think by, by the time, you know, there's a lot of set personality traits that, that are pretty much fixed very early on and after three, four, five years old. And then they, then there's a whole series of things where the synapses really become a, a little bit more tightened and a little bit more permanent around you know, after puberty. And then they really start, you know, the last sort of layering of these monoamines and cortex occurs in your late teens to early mid-20s. And, and these are when those diseases related to that come out, like schizophrenia and depression. They tend to pop up when that machine is done. And then... The final maturation of the brain is when you're about 35. So your brain does develop up until about that time. And then, you know, your late 60s is usually when you're the most balanced cognitively. And that's when, you know, you're really performing mentally at a high level. Uh, but uh, before 25, it's, you know, you're so emotionally uh, you know, I, I, impacted. In, and everybody has a different level of, of this this interaction. So there's a so there's that over there's an overall arc of, of maturation. But within that, I, I think you know the plasticity, the real plasticity, mostly that that occurs is in these what are called unmyelinated systems. That is, they're the fine fibers that don't have a myelin sheath around them, and these they're very plastic even when you're old. And these are the ones that are serotonin. Uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Those are those myelinated systems, and it's it's what a lot of the you know big pharma is based on is manipulating those systems, M manipulating dopamine, norepinephrine. Those are unmyelinated; they are plastic. But the real things that that 
are set for your personality. Uh, set down for your personality. Those are myelinated systems that are set very early. And I think that plasticity in those systems is highly oversold. I just don't believe it. Uh, what you do have, and we mentioned at the beginning, that for each function, people will have multiple ways to solve those problems. You know, neurologically, they'll have uh, different workarounds for it. It appears like plasticity, but it's really a pl functional plasticity. That is, Functionally, you're going to bring on another system in your brain to answer the question, another system, but you're not changing connections, these wires that have, you know, that are surrounded by myelin. And I, I, I think those are not plastic. And, and but we're made to think they're plastic, but uh, it's like the most artifact. The most artifact was temporary. A lot of these things are temporary uh, changes. And so the ability to uh, reverse personality disorders after you know, puberty, I highly, highly doubt it because those are myelinated systems. But like anything, you can sit down and focus on something and every day think about it. You know, Oprah can think about not eating and every day and she'll keep the weight up. But once she lets it go, like any New Year's resolution on alcohol, drugs, or just, uh, you know, having affairs or whatever, you got to think about it every day because your natural default position is that other behavior. So there are probably 5% of people that can beat it, but they got to think about it every day, be very diligent. So it's beatable. It's not a death warrant, but this idea that everything's plastic, you got to understand what that means. You know, it's partly just functional plasticity to bring on already fixed systems in, under different circumstances. And then there's the unmyelinated stuff having to do with the serotonin dopamine. Excellent answer and good place to wrap up. Now, where can people find you? In my jacuzzi, actually, is where I, I, or in front of, uh, I, I like to watch racing. I like horse racing and, and, and sipping bourbon in my jacuzzi and, and reading books. And, and that's, uh, I even have scientific meetings out there. I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> I have meetings at my house, you know, and, uh, and so uh, where they can find me is, um, well, you know, University of California, Irvine, I have a URL that is kind of my geek, uh, you know, my faculty thing. There's a Wikipedia page some student put up, somebody who was angry Twitter. with me, I think. And, uh, and then uh, I have a Twitter feed. I have a couple of talks. I have uh, one coming out today. That, so okay. I put those on Twitter and came out yesterday. So a couple of talks, and then I'm doing another one that'll be at the end of the week, and then one from Russia. I did one from Moscow. So I try to put my the most recent talks, like if you put this up, I'll, I'll put this on Twitter, but I don't, I'm not chatty on Twitter. I just put it up as like, okay, okay this is what That's I did. James H. Fallon on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Oh, double you check. I, yeah. That's, oh yes. Why not James oh. H. Fallon on Twitter? Yeah. And um, I mean, it's funny cause I don't, you know, when I wrote my book, the, uh, the publisher and the, they said, you got to, you know, put the stuff on Twitter. I said, oh, man, you got to put it on Facebook. Oh, man, you got to put it on. And I don't naturally sure. like to do that, right? And so I don't even know. Like, I'm serious. I don't know, like, the Twitter, even though I, you I log use in, it. You log in, call yourself. Uh, you know, um, and uh, also, you know, people email me, too. Like, they okay. still do that. And, but that's how they find me. They can read that book. I try not to Please hype, hype the book, but, book, you know, book and it's, it's, well, thank you. And it's still, you know, it's a fair amount of science and medicine, psychiatry in there, but, and so it's, uh, but it's also a personal memoir and, and it's, I try to be as honest as possible. I didn't tell, I didn't say everything I did, you know, it's a hard one to do everything, but a lot of, you know, the examples. So, 
that, that book still works, you know, for you know the psychiatry and the science behind it, and it's, you know, it's still how I am. So anyway, yeah, Twitter, and uh, also uh, some people email me. Uh, I don't like to get a lot of emails because I can't sure. answer them. You know, I get, sure, but people can get me that That's way. Fantastic. Hey, everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.